0: In our sermon today, we're going to deal with introductions. It is, after all, the start of the new year, for those of you who are at school, or it soon will be. And as it turns out, the Psalms that we read are the beginning of the book of Psalms. And the parable of the sower is the beginning, or the introduction, to Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 lies at the structural center of the gospel, and his parables are crucial, but yet they're also tricky. So this morning, or this afternoon, I want us to uh, do what is a review for some of you who have heard me preach on the Psalms before, but for others of you, this might be new. And believe it or not, if you, as you look at the bottom of page one, you'll see a floor plan of the book of Psalms. And I want to begin by asking you a couple of general questions. And um, if you're shy and worried, just look down and don't say anything and, and nobody will think ill of you. But if you're, if, you're, if you're one of those Bible college keeners, then just belt it right out. How many Psalms are there? We're on page one at the top under Psalms one and two. How many Psalms are there in the, in the Bible? 150, right. Now, this one's trickier because it's not in the Book of Common Prayer. So maybe some of you Baptists will do better than the Anglicans. How many books are the Book of Psalms divided into? Okay. Uh, Marian, five. Does anybody know what those are? Okay, that's pushing it, isn't it? (laughs) One to 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to 50. All right. So here's a review of Glenn's past teaching. Sometimes, uh, well, a few years ago, um, I shared from the Psalms, and um, I just wanted to review that for us because I think it's crucial. If the book of Psalms is a house and it has a two door entrance and a divided floor and then an exit, I wonder if you can help me identify the parts. Um, Where do the first two psalms belong in Glenn's floor plan diagram of the psalms? Psalms 1 and 2 were read today, and they are the introductory ones. Psalm 1 is at the front door, so it's the first door you enter to read the book of psalms literally, right? Right. And then Psalm 2 is the second door. And you cannot read the book without being introduced to these psalms. And they actually tell you how to read the book. They are the literary equivalent of Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, in my judgment, whereas Psalm 1 is like Proverbs 1, 1 to 6. And if you remember Proverbs 1, 1 to 6, it's like an invitation to read the book. If you are wise, you're going to learn from this book. If you're simple, you're going to learn, to re- you're going to learn from this book. And it's a, an invitation to read the book. So, the psalm that we just read on page five, number one, is an invitation to read and study the book of Psalms. Happy is the person who doesn't listen to the wicked, who doesn't go where sinners go, who doesn't do what bad people do. He loves the Lord's teachings. He thinks about those teachings day and night. Now, the word for teachings is the word law. And when you think of the Old Testament law, you think normally of the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. But here at the beginning of the book of Psalms, it's inviting you to meditate upon another law book. How many books does the Psalm, book of Psalms have? Five. So it is calling the book of Psalms, as it were, and indeed the whole third part of the Old Testament, of which the book of Psalms is in most cases an introduction, law. It's something to study. And if you think about and you muse on the word of God as contained in the Psalms especially, but also in the third part of the Old Testament, and indeed the first and indeed the second, as well as the new, We become like a tree planted by a river that produces fruit in season. Its leaf does not die, and everything we do will succeed. My friends, this is an introduction to a sermon which is essentially about the power of the Word of God, the effective power of the message that God delivers in the Bible, through the Bible and through the teachings of Jesus. So there's a contrast between people who meditate upon the word, and then those who don't, who are walking a different path. And the psalmist in verse four uh, says, "But not so the wicked; they are like useful chat, useless chaff that the wind blows away." The poet does not even assign a verb to the wicked. Um, there's a picture of just futility and emptiness. Uh, there's no active verb, but not so the wicked. They are like they like useless chaff that the wind blows away, and so on. So door number one is the door of the. Um, let's um, and put it in the in the, in the lower left hand corner of the bulletin. I've got golf pens, you guys. Hang on. So in the lower left hand corner. Psalm one is the door of the pious individual. It's an invitation to you and me. That's why the individual is not named. Blessed is the one who meditates upon the law. What about door number two? Well, let's go back to the analogy of Proverbs one, one to seven. Proverbs one, one to six is like Psalm one, it's an invitation. Then Proverbs 1.7 gives you the message of the book, the theme of the book of Proverbs. And some of you know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here Psalm 2 gives you the theme of the book. And the theme of the book is about a king of the Jews who other nations are conspiring against. And they seriously underestimate his power. But God has enthroned the king of the Jews, called his son, in Jerusalem, and that individual holds the destiny of the nations in his hands. My friends, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, but its placement tells us that it is the theme of the book of Psalms, just like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in in Proverbs. It casts a messianic shadow over the whole book, so that in one sense, all 150 psalms are messianic. In a sense, the shadow is that big. In fact, it's so big that Psalm 2 has a back shadow. Psalm 2, door number 2, has a little rearview mirror on it. And it turns Psalm 1 also into a messianic psalm. So in the lower left-hand corner, we have the door of the pious individual and also the Messiah. Now, this one is a bit tricky, but if you remember Deuteronomy chapter 17, I think it's verses 15 to 18, the king is given an important job. And of course, the king is like the Messiah. He is to meditate upon the law regularly, just like an ordinary individual. So that makes Psalm 1 and 2 um, kind of a double function. Uh, Number 1 can be both for us and the Messiah, and number 2 says whatever else you understand about the book of Psalms, it's about the Messiah. Okay. So um, then uh, you'll see a line across the floor where there's a crisis in the book of Psalms, and that is Psalm. Anybody know what it is? The, the, The Davidic covenant? 89, thank you, Marion. She's, 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 she's one of the staff here, folks. Don't get, don't get too intimidated by, by Marion. It's easy to get intimidated by Marion, except that she's so friendly. Uh, it's hard to do. In Psalm 89, it looks as though Davidic kingship, the kingship of King David, is going to die. And so uh, it's kind of a line in the sand. And so the first part of the floor and the second part of the floor beyond Psalm 89 emphasize different things about the kingship, about kingship. So at the bottom of page one, on the lower right, put David is king. Because after Psalm 89, there's a relative emphasis on Yahweh as king. There's just a shift in emphasis. David is still king in the second part, God is still king in the first, but there's a noticeable shift. And then uh, if you look at the conclusion, if you're good at reading lousy writing on the roof, you'll see the words PTL, no, on the roof of the, uh, (laughs) on the roof of the diagram, one person's looking up saying, where's the writing on the roof? If you look on the roof of the diagram, it says PTL, which of course is praise the Lord. And the conclusion to the book of Psalms is 146 to 50. So write 146 to 50. Okay, I think we got all the blanks filled in. And so here's the question. If the Psalms is, the book, is a book about the Messiah, then what kind of an individual qualifies as the Messiah? And here you can fill in the blanks one to four, if you wish, on page one. Well, the Messiah, as in Psalm number one, would be a diligent student of the word. And perhaps even pronounce beatitudes regarding God's laws. You see, in Psalm 1, when it says, happy is the person, this is the same word that occurs in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, when Jesus says, blessed are they who, blessed are they who. So Jesus is consciously adopting the status of a wise fulfiller of the Old Testament as a wise individual, and he is stepping into his role as the Messiah. And so when in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed is the one Uh, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, and so on, Uh, he is mimicking Psalm 1. So, the Messiah, as in Psalm 1, would be a diligent student of the word and perhaps even pronounce beatitudes regarding God's law and ways. So, Jesus meets criterion number one. Criterion number two, the Messiah, as in Psalm 2, would be the something of God, K of the J, Marion, you can't, you can't participate. Marion, just, just, okay, this is one of these things where, you know, just go back to seminary where you came from. You're, you're just too smart. Let's let other people have it. Him. Oh, you were, you were just massaging your hair. Okay, so um, who, who is, who is a David in Psalm 2? He is declared to be, today you are my Son. Did somebody say it? That's right. So, in the Messiah in Psalm 2 would be the Son of God, the King of the Jews, enthroned as such in Jerusalem, and the Judge of the nations, right? Did Jesus meet those criteria? Was He the Son of God, the King of the Jews, enthroned on the cross in Jerusalem, and declared to be the Judge of Nations? Then number three, I didn't say much about this, the Messiah as starting in Psalm 3, but as is best known in Psalm 22, would be a Essing Messiah. Pardon? Him. Yes. Okay. Even behind your mask. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So him said suffering. Okay. So the Messiah would suffer. That's what he says in the New Testament. All right. Now we noticed criteria number four. This is tricky. I can't imagine anybody who could do this how could you both be David as king and Yahweh as king? But that's who you would have to be and what you'd have to do to fulfill the hope embodied in the book of Psalms. So the Messiah would be able to embody both the emphasis on kingship in the first part as David, the king leading up to the death of the Messiah in Psalm 89. And in the second part as Yahweh, the king. Jesus draws attention to this. He says, why do you guys think that uh, the Messiah is David's son? And then he cites Psalm 110, one of those psalms in the second part of the floor that emphasizes and continues to emphasize that Davidic kingship will continue. And that emphasis on divine kingship, by the way, occurs three psalms after the death of the Messiah, so it would seem, in Psalm 89. Out of the blue, all of a sudden. Yahweh has become king you say Yahweh's always become king what's different well there's a different sense in which Yahweh has become king because his son has risen from the dead so Jesus and Jesus alone fulfills the messianic hope that's embodied in the psalms uh, anybody besides, anybody besides Marian or maybe Sandra or somebody else I don't know I'm, I'm picking on you today Marian. I hope you don't mind Um, and I already mentioned it, in what Old Testament passage can one regard Psalm 1 also to pertain to the Messiah? It's Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay, did you notice that the theme is the same in Psalms 1 and 2 as in uh, Matthew chapter 13? That's what I have at the top of uh, page 1. In both passages, God and his Messiah invite us to mull over God's word to let it put down roots deep into our hearts, and then to grow and bear fruit in the kingdom of God. That's the message of Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. And now we come to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Actually, a better name for it would be the parable of the seed and the fate of the seed. We read it before. Let me just cast a shadow or cast a light on it again, picking up from chapter 12, where Jesus's family were outside the house, and uh, Jesus's followers were inside. Now Jesus comes out of the house, uh, into the world, as it were, and maybe as an introvert, I don't know, he was sitting alongside the sea, all by himself, and all of a sudden, the news gets out, Jesus is here, big crowds gather around him, so many that he got into the boat and sat down. It was the only place he could be in order to address this mob of people that were there. And then he spoke many of th- things to them in parables. And then he tells a parable. What is a parable? In Sunday school, you might have learned that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, and that's pretty good. Um, but it's not the end of the deal. Um, there A lot of the parables have earthly meanings as well as heavenly meanings. I think the thing to remember here, and we'll see this especially next week when we come to probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament, or one of them, that the parables that Jesus told had a twofold purpose. One was to teach the initiated, and the other was to pose a riddle to people who were mildly curious. So today, in verses 1 to 9, let me read it, and remember that Jesus did not go on to give the explanation in verses 18 to 23 to the people on the beach. His disciples came to him and said, what was that about? And Jesus explained it to them, but he allowed the crowd to continue to mull over that word, which is why in verse 9, it says, let anyone with ears be sure to listen. So imagine yourself standing on the shore and Jesus is in the boat, this famous cool teacher, the one who does miracles and that everybody's talking about. And he says, look, the sower went to sow. And in the course of his sowing, some seeds fell along the road and the birds came and gobbled them up. I'm on page two. And others fell on rocky ground where they were not having much soil. And right away, they sprang up on account of the lack of soil depth. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and on account of not having roots, they withered away. But others fell among thorns, and the thorns rose up and choked them. Still other seeds fell upon the good ground and kept producing grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then Jesus throws out his proverbial teaser, and he says, Let anyone with ears be sure to listen. Jesus is being a bit coy. He's being a bit mysterious. But his invitation is worth taking to heart. Think about my word. Don't assume it's obvious. Plumb its depths. And when one plums its depths, one finds that the Spirit of God begins to move in a group of people and transform them and allow them to grow and flourish. And this, in part, is what this psalm, this parable, is about. It's about the power of the word of God to change people's lives and to grow them. The same as in Psalm 1 and 2. So here, this Sunday, Jesus has a message for us as the initiated. And next Sunday, we're going to go back and explore what Jesus was doing with the riddle where he was actually keeping information from people. If you read Mark chapter four, verses 10 and 11, and you have not read them before, you will be stunned. The disciples say to him, why do you speak in parables? And he said, oh, so that they won't understand, so that they won't believe and repent and turn to me, lest any of them be forgiven. Excuse me? <laughs> what did you say? The complete opposite of what we think the, par- the, the parables are about. So next week, and I appreciate your prayers. When you're preaching through a book, you have to cover everything. And Matthew says it a little bit more mildly, but he still says that I'm keeping things from people, and we'll come and understand why next week. But for this week, We, as the the disciples, the the followers of Jesus, are given the explanation to the parable. And so um, I want to explain the parable and talk about four categories, four ways of receiving the message. And there's an irony here, because you see, what I'm doing right now is I am preaching the teachings of Jesus. And so you are hearing the message that comes from the Bible. And the critical thing to know and to do is to know how to respond to it. And there are four ways, Jesus says, you can respond to the word. And it makes all the difference in the world. Not to understand and not to respond is to lose out. But to respond with a proper level of understanding is to have your life transformed by this word. Uh, Jesus used the seed imagery for a reason. It's a small thing, but it's full of life. And if it's nourished, it grows, and it becomes this huge thing that bears fruit and influences others, feeds others. And so there is a mystery here surrounding the word of God. And Jesus, in this parable, sheds light on how it is and why it is that the seed bears fruit in some people's lives, but not in others. And he goes through four cases, starting with the worst scenario. In verse 9, he says, regarding the one, and I'm I'm on page 2 of your handout here if you're wondering where we're reading from, regarding the one who hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Regarding the one who hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now, you see, Jesus has switched gears here. In the first instance, telling the riddle from the beach, it was seeds fell along the road. And you're wondering, what's the road? What are the seeds? And so Jesus explains to his disciples, the seed has to do with hearing the word of God. And the soil is symbolic of your response to it and how you respond to circumstances that might draw you away from understanding the message of Jesus and the message of eternal life. And so Jesus comes right out of it and right out and he said, and he doesn't even say that this is what the seed is. He says, regarding the one who hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. As I go through this four cases, I want you to think of an analogy that sometimes I've used in teaching preaching. Um, on the power of an illustration. And I say that an illustration is like a a nail that um, a carpenter has on a piece of wood. And of course, what you have to do is you have to pound the nail into the wood, right? Uh, If you don't pound it at all, what happens? Well, this nail in this pulpit would just roll down the table and onto the floor, right? Because it's just standing there or it's just sitting there. And Jesus says that that's what happens to the person who hears the word and just kind of goes, oh yeah, well, uh, I don't really understand it and I don't really care. It just kind of goes away. And then the life-changing message of the gospel is snatched away. It's like a seed uh, on the soil, on the hard soil. A bird comes along says, oh, here's lunch. And the bird's lunch is your lost opportunity to be changed by the transforming power of the word of God. So friends, our response to the word is important. And how we respond to circumstances is important. Take, for example, the second case. As for the one that was sown on the rocky ground, this is the person who hears the word and straight away receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but is only temporary. But when afflicted or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he gets tripped up. Now, its counterpart in the riddle explanation, just to recall, in verse 5, says, other seed fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil, and right away it sprang up quickly on account of the fact that the soil was easy to push through and shallow. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and and on account of not having roots, they withered away. So I want you to ask yourself, as you contemplate, The message of the Christian gospel, and as you hear the truth of the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit speaking to you through it, as he will and as he does, and as he is, no doubt, in most, if not all cases right now, what is your response? Well, the response ought to be wholehearted and fully committed. Let's hope it's not in the first case, simply not understanding and deciding you don't really care, but in the second case, it's like that nail... They get set in the wood and the carpenter puts those first few little taps down, you know, boink, boink, just to hold it there. And there's the nail in the wood standing up, still very vulnerable, but it's poised to be pounded by the carpenter who now is able to take his or her finger off it and hit it with a hammer. So that's the posture of the one who hears the word and goes, whoa, wow, that's kind of exciting. I like that. Whoa, that's really cool. But then things get hot. In our story, it is affliction and persecution. Uh, You know, getting eaten by lions in the Colosseum kind of thing. Not an easy situation. But some kind of a pain or awful situation or an affliction comes along. And when things get hot, you get out of the gospel kitchen. And so, you get tripped up. The word is the same word that's used for stumbling over something, and most people translate it falling away, which actually is a good translation. It literally means get tripped up. But when you fall away, it usually is a bad thing, right? If you, uh, oh, they fell away, it means, oh, man, they're, they've kind of lost, lost focus. And so, um, friends, when you consider the message of Jesus, Jesus is telling us, that it's nice to hear it and receive it, and even to receive it with joy. But make sure you put down deep roots, because when things get hot, you may not survive. This is a sobering truth. There are some people who are not here this Sunday, who were here a year ago, who were part of our fellowship, and things got hot, and they're not here. The word is to be responded to, because it's a gift from God. As for the one sown among thorns, and this is the one that I think might have the most impact, at least in our culture, this is the person who hears the word, yet the preoccupations of life and the deceitful lure of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You know, you you are a Bible-believing, church-going Christian. Your life is being transformed Uh, you're growing in your faith, you're part of a Bible study group, but then, oh man, if I worked a little longer, I'd be able to pay off the mortgage faster. Or, you know, the kids want to do soccer on Sunday, and oh gosh, you know, soccer is a whole lot better than other things they could be involved in. Or uh, you get obsessed with how other people are renovating their houses and choosing designs for their kitchen and their bathroom, and people are remodeling some rooms that probably don't even really need it in the first place. Or the neighbor has one of those new BMW sports cars. I, I know this because I've coveted it, actually. Um, you know, one of those BMW sports cars with the top down and those sloped front lights and those cute little tail lights, And you think, wow, for $100,000, I could drive around in one of those things. I mean, that is really amazing. Just listen to it. Or a Mustang V8 with dual um, exhaust. You know, you could just kind of hear it. I mean, it just doesn't putter like a Corolla. You know, there are the lures of wealth. And these things sneak up on you slowly. And before you know it, you're a different person than you were five years ago. You think, whoa, I used to go to church all the time. I used to be involved in the Bible study. What am I doing now? Well, I'm working late into the office and I'm, you know, carrying my weight here and pulling my weight there. The thorns, my friend, have grown up and have got you by the throat and are snatching away the word. Don't let that happen. Finally, Jesus says, there's the one sown upon the good ground. This is the person who hears the word, and this, cur- this is crucial in, in Matthew chapter 13. It doesn't occur before Matthew chapter 13, and it occurs nine times later, I think seven times in 13. It's the word understand. The one sown upon the good ground, this is the person who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. My friend, understand is code word for another part of the character of Jesus that we haven't met or talked about very much yet, And that is, and it's mentioned on page three, and don't worry, I'm not going through all 15 pages. This is mostly just for your reading. Jesus, we know to be the Messiah. We know he's the Son of God. We know he's the suffering servant. Um, We know he's the new Moses. We know he's the new Jeremiah. But did you also know that he is the prototypical Old Testament Solomon, a wise person? And if you read the book of Proverbs, one of the books, one of the words that comes up over and over again is understand, understand, understand. And so this word understand here is code language for making yourself a disciple of Jesus as the wise teacher. Uh, On page three, uh, there's a scholar named Barton who describes the gospel sense as the following. Wisdom is not just a body of knowledge. It's a way of seeing which attends to what lies hidden as well as to what lies on the surface. So you're paying extra attention to Jesus when he says, if you have ears to hear, listen, don't ever believe that you've heard it all. Keep going back to the word and dwelling in it, and you'll grow and thrive. This characterizes the teaching of Jesus very well. Take, for example, 13.9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear and the go-deep righteousness about which we learned in the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year. So understanding is about commitment. It's about hanging in for the long haul. It's about being deeply rooted. I was refreshed this week to visit my brother and sister-in-law who um, are recently retired, but... um, They've always been busy. He was a geophysicist, and she was a very busy doctor with a cancer clinic to run. And every day, they have at least half an hour together in the Word. Uh, Together, they get up early, and they, they study the Bible, and they go through a program. And right now, they're going through Nikki Gumbel's The Bible in a Year program. And they've tried Scripture Union. They do different things. But I thought, you know, this is a couple that could have been choked by all kinds of things, but here they are making a priority of meditating upon the word and making it their focus. Jesus says, This is the ticket, folks. Make a priority of meditating upon the word. It's life giving, it's life changing, and it is the means by which we grow. Now, why is it that the word finally um, makes a difference um, in our lives. Well, I said finally, almost too soon, but 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 um, I will remind myself that it's 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 um, indeed pretty much time to um, um, to to um, to check out. The word is worth meditating upon because the word is an expression of the mind and the will of God. Jesus is the word. He is the human expression of the mind and the will of God. So it's a little bit like uh, sort of plugging that appliance into the wall. Um, there's a lot of juice there that comes and that helps your machinery function and that brings life to things that are otherwise dead. So the word of God has the power um, to, um, to transform. So, by way of application, one of the ones that's obvious is there are four ways to respond to the Word of God, but the other applies to those of you who are Christian leaders or perhaps ministers or others, and that is that the message of proclaiming the Word doesn't always bear a lot of fruit. There are um, people who go away. There are not very many people who respond, but Jesus is reminding the person who shares the Word with others that although many will turn away, a few will follow, and in the end, the thing will explode. I mean, here's a Galilean peasant, uh, Jesus, and the reason we have chapter 13, and and they'll tell you this, Jesus is explaining why he hasn't been very successful, and Jesus is giving riddles and saying, yeah, just wait, it's going to get better. But then think about what happened two or three hundred years after Jesus, or even as soon as he was risen from the dead. The message of the gospel spread like wildfire. And before you know it, Constantine, the head of the Roman Empire, converts to Christianity. And all of a sudden, Christianity becomes a global religion, all emanating from this sage who talks about the word and having the word planted in your soul. So, God, help us to be those who take the word and are committed to it, who put down deep roots, and who not only say and hear the word, but do it. And if you're one who shares the word, have patience. You may not appear to bear a lot of fruit, but you proclaim the message of the word, and people's lives will transform, and the kingdom of God will be enhanced. Amen.